The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. John Hughes is the author of seven books, including the multi-award winning The Idea of Home and Someone Else. His 2019 novel, No One, was shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary Award. Today, I'm talking with John Hughes about his latest book, Tales from the Greek, a series of narrative adaptations of Greek tragedies and ancient myths in collaboration with internationally acclaimed Melbourne-based painter and printmaker Marco Lucio. John, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Uh, thank you, Greg. Nice to be here. So Tales from the Greek is a rather unique production. What was your vision for this project? I'd worked with Marco, Marco Lucio about seven years ago on um, a collaboration called uh, The Garden of Sorrows, which was a, a collection of Australian fables in which Australian animals behave very badly and as a consequence are uh, transformed into human beings. Um, I loved the work that Marco did for that book, his renderings of the animals and the actions and the activities that they got up to. And so we'd always thought after doing that, that we'd really like to do another project at some point in time. And then I started writing these stories, I suppose something to, to occupy me after I'd finished my, my second novel, Asylum. And I thought of them a little bit as as studies, I guess, that I, I wanted to tell these classic stories a different way each time. I suppose I wanted to try a whole range of different technical exercises, I, I suppose you might say. And after I'd written one or two, I began to think, well, this might be something that would interest Marco as well. And so I sent the stories off, a couple that I'd done off to him, and he was really excited by them, I think they kind of fired his imagination up again, uh, as we as we'd done with the Garden of Sorrows, and so then it really took off from that point. I thought, well, now I can see that you know, that he that he finds he finds something uh, in these stories that he can work with, and so it spurred me on to to write more stories, and and we and yeah, so we took off from that moment. Tales from the Greek brings a, sort of a distant and mythological past into the present. What were the sources uh, that you draw from in retelling these ancient stories? The main sources are the three great surviving tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. But before that, I think that the, kind of the sources for so many of the myths and, and their, the stories that they developed in their, in their plays were the two epics, the two Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, those two poems and uh, plays. And I... I studied Greek for a couple of years at Newcastle University during my undergraduate time, and I've been reading them uh, ever since. And every time a new translation comes out, I always like to see the new version of the plays or the poems. So they feel quite familiar to me, almost like old friends who uh, we meet up again from time to time, and it's as if we've, we haven't been apart. Uh, and so those are really the primary sources for the stories. And what do you think their relevance is to modern times, to the times we live in here and now? I was actually thinking about this only this morning because I was just thinking about 
they took the, the little launching um, speech I'm going to make. We're, we're, we're launching the book and the exhibition in, in Melbourne on, um, on Friday night. And my sense is that these stories are really the foundations of you know, Western literature and, and art, but they're not foundations set in stone or made out of stone. They've been constantly retold and recast. Um, and so the, the, the stories that the, the Greek tragedians tell are themselves reworkings of reworkings of earlier and earlier versions. And so I suppose that the reason why they survive and I suppose the reason why I think that it's worth retelling them again is because basically they've got something to say, something important, something vital, something from which we can't turn away. You know, the, the relation between the human soul and destiny, uh, what happens to, to that soul when it's transformed by, a, by a kind of a, like a kind of pitiless necessity. In one of the stories, for instance, Orestes uh, is required to avenge his father's murder, but that requires him to kill his mother. But matricide is a sin. Um, so by acting or not acting, he sins. So in that story, to do right is wrong. And I guess it's a, those sorts of moral paradoxes, the kinds of situations in which we, we find it so hard to make a choice and yet we have to make a choice, those sorts of things. It seems that although the, the situations may be different for us now, the way in which these writers, those early writers, deal with that so elementally um, seem to me to be very fertile ground for making the stories come alive again for a contemporary audience. Some of the stories retain their original settings in ancient Greece, while others provide a more modern context, as you said, for the adaptation. What were the criteria for making those distinctions or, or connections, if you like, between the settings? It's an interesting question and not something that I approached consciously uh, when I think back on it now. It was as if each of the stories came to me in the form that it did. And so some of them, as you say, I had an idea of a kind of modern rendering of that story, as, for instance, say, in the long story Lady Macbeth of Tamarama Bay, which approaches, I suppose, the, the Greek stories via Shakespeare or the second version of Achilles, whereas the others, it just seemed to me that I could still tell a modern story whilst keeping it set in that ancient context. And that, too, was, was inter an interesting one for me, how how the ancient can still be modern and can feel very contemporary, I think, such as maybe the first story, Corruption, um, which looks at the, the triangle of you know, um, Philoctetes, Odysseus and Neoptolemus, Achilles' son. So the stories themselves, I think, suggested that to me as before I approached them. And all of these stories explore universal themes in, in one way or another. One in particular uh, is time or the passing of time. And it's perhaps no better expressed in the fourth story, Riddle. How does Riddle play with the concept of time? Uh, well, Riddle was a the, probably the most difficult story for me to write. Uh, certainly technically the most difficult story for me to write because, as you say, it, it, it plays with time. And so what it does is it tells the story of Oedipus and Antigone in reverse. So it begins with the death of Antigone, but that death is presented as a birth. 
reading the narrative is like watching a film run in reverse. But to actually write that um, so that it still makes sense, so that effects become causes and causes become effects, uh, that, was a very, that was very challenging, but at the same time it was a very interesting thing to do. What, I suppose, triggered the idea, if a family is living under a curse so that what that means in the, in the, the Greek tradition is that the future already exists. So once you've been cursed, that the future is as real as the past. It's as inescapable and unchangeable as the past. And so I thought if that was the case, then future and past are interchangeable in, in a way. That, 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 and so I suppose the next step for me then was to just, as, as, as we've said, just to reverse the two, to make the past the future and the future the past and see what kind of world it was if you kind of literalised that, that transformation. And I hope, I mean, I hope readers will will enjoy it. Um, I think that for all the stories, some knowledge of the the original stories is is useful, but hopefully not essential. That I'm hoping that the stories will still still make sense in themselves, whether or not you know um, the Greek myths on which these stories are based. And that yes. leads me to story number five, Lady Macbeth of Tamarama Bay. Two strong themes in that play, the legacy of guilt and ambition. Is this a thread common to Lady Macbeth of Tamarama Bay? Um, I think so. It's recast in a very different context. But, but in this context, the husband is a, a Russian philosophy professor who is an emigre who has obviously fled Russia after the revolution. And his wife is almost the antithesis of him in that she is someone who, it seems, has a great belief in the occult and the supernatural and is, con- is constantly consulting the tarot cards and going to fortune tellers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I sort of wanted to set up this sense of, a, I suppose, first of all, of someone with committed to rationality and the other moving the irrational. But the husband has given up on life and his younger wife, who knows what he is and what he has been and wants to spur him to try and regain his life. And to do that, uh, she becomes involved in the abduction uh, and it involves an abduction in some kind and then the gradual involvement of the the husband making him complicit in in that abduction. We can't talk about this book without talking about Marco Lucio's artwork and that's an extensive and imaginative response to the stories. And it made me wonder about the brief that you gave to Marco. What was that conversation that you had with Marco? In our, um, our first collaboration, Marco was constantly sending me images and asking for feedback on those images and, and wanting to make sure that what he was doing kind of, uh, I suppose, corresponded to the, the sort of idea that I might have. I just loved his responses so much that it just, it just seemed to me that I wanted him to feel completely free in, in how he responded to those stories. And so this time... Um, Although once again, we there was quite a bit of interchange in that 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 Marco was sending me, that that really I would be happy with, I suppose, however he chose to respond to the images, and it's like the images tell the story in a different way. So that rather than a, I think a more kind of conventional illustration, they are an alternative version of. The stories, and so I really like that. So the, the brief, if anything, was to feel as free as you 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 want to in your response, um, and we'll see how it goes. The images that accompany these stories move between two 
different mediums. There's the medium of charcoal drawings and then etchings, which include dry point. So on one hand, you've, you've got this very direct medium of charcoal on paper, and then this very indirect process of etching where you, you draw onto a plate and then the image is reversed and ink is involved and presses. Uh, how do these two contrasting processes resonate with your own creative process? It's an interesting question because I think that in the beginning, uh, Marco was was experimenting with, as you say, both of those media. So he started off doing some ch some charcoals and some of the early charcoals, which is still there in the book. I just thought, just thought were were beautiful um, and and just just so perfect for the the stories. But then started doing some of them as etchings as well and very suited to reproduction, um, which is exactly what we have in the, in when, when they're when they're produced in a book. So that 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 worked in that way. But for me, on the one hand, these stories are reproductions too, as we've said, as we as we spoke about earlier, because I'm working with material that precedes me, that I very consciously chosen certain uh, Greek myths and have recast them. So I've kind of reproduced them, I suppose, in in my my own way. There is also that that element of of inspiration, that element in which it's not just about reproducing, but it's also, I suppose, telling the story from the inside as well. So that I've looked at these stories from the outside as a reader, and now I have to get inside them and let them come to life that way. So that's the more kind of, I suppose, a more spontaneous, uh, a more inspired. So, so that sense of, of trying to bring these things to life as they exist within my imagination, rather than as they exist outside my imagination in the forms that they've had over this over the centuries. We've got to talk about the form of this book. Uh, and I, I hesitate to even call it a book because it's um, so colossal and ambitious in its form. It's a, a large format bound book with obviously very high production values. What were the technical challenges in producing a book like this and, and in realising your, your own artistic and Marco's artistic vision? That has been, has been a real process um i suppose when we started four or five years ago marco refers to it as, as, as an odyssey in, in itself and i think there's there's certainly something something to that we've been going at it for quite some time um, and i don't think we realized ourselves how as you the, the, the lovely term you use how colossal or monumental it was going to be i think at the, at the beginning we just sort of thought well i'll write some more stories and marco will do some more drawings etchings etc and we'll see how that goes. And, and as the process has gone on, it just, be, it just became larger and larger. And so we began to think, well, we really need a, a kind of magnitude, I suppose, of book that could match the scale of the, of the stories and the images. And when we thought that, that we, we wanted it to be, I suppose, a work of art in itself. That was how we, we came to think about it, that we, we couldn't publish it as a conventional book because it was just going to be too big and, and too, the way in which we conceive it too big and too expensive and, and, and so that thinking about it as being a work of art in itself was a very liberating thought for us too because then it meant that we could start then focusing as you say on the, the quality of the paper it's it's a very high quality and quite dense paper almost like a kind of art paper in itself and also we could spend a lot of time on the design and Marco has been very, very heavily involved in the designing of the book, as well as the making of the, the images. He worked very closely with the designer um, all the way through the process. And 
He's also then worked very closely with the printers as well. So that in a way, um, the, this this book, which is comprised of so many separate elements, stories and images, well, what we hope is, I suppose, greater than the sum of its parts, I suppose, so that it becomes in the end a complete and unified and whole work of art, which when you when you have it, um, that there's pleasure, there's pleasure even in the object itself as well as what that object contains. That at least is our that's our intention. And I think it does all of those things, John. And I want to thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Greg. I've been talking with John Hughes about his latest book, Tales from the Greek, a series of narrative adaptations of Greek tragedies and ancient myths in collaboration with painter and printmaker Marco Lucio. It's available in a limited edition of 500 copies at marcoluccio.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.